Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, this is Virginia. Events over recent years have highlighted racial inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. Here at Broad Talk, we recognise that the path towards true reconciliation is the responsibility of all of us, all the time. In that spirit, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record this podcast, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. And a word of warning, the episode you're about to hear includes discussion about some topics that some listeners may find distressing. If you or anyone you know needs help or support, please contact the 1800 Respect Helpline or Lifeline on 13 11 14. What do those ageing women's livers of the 1960s and 70s make of the current March for Justice movement? And how does Australia's new explosion of feminist activity connect to our past in a world still blighted by gender inequality? Feminism, by definition, is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Feminism is about equality, isn't it? It's about men and women having the same opportunities in life. If that does not suit you, then get out. You know, there's been a lot of talk recently about whether our country is ready for women leaders. It takes courage and strength to be empathetic. Smashing the glass ceiling yet again! Not now, not ever. I moved on her like a bitch. I just don't think there's a place for sexism in our politics. Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. This has to stop. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk, the podcast about women, power and the wayward world. I'm Virginia Halsiger. Thank you so much for joining me. And a big shout out to those of you who've been sending messages and leaving comments on our Broad Talk Facebook page or in the Broad Talk Roundtable Facebook group. I love hearing from you. I'm always fascinated to hear the diversity of views and thoughts and really appreciate the exchange. There's so much to talk about right now. And to those of you who are new to Broad Talk, a very warm welcome. Please come on in, join the conversation on Facebook, in our group, or now on Twitter at TalkBroad, 
all one word, or you can find me at Virginia underscore house, H-A-U-S-S. But right now, I want you to meet one of those gutsy, fiery feminists I've long admired. Biff Ward is one of the original so-called brazen hussies. She featured in the recently released documentary film of the same name. And look, if you haven't seen Brazen Hussies, I urge you to track it down. It provides a fabulous insight to second wave feminism in Australia, and it's fantastic viewing. Biff is now 78 years old. Back in her 20s, she was a noisy political activist, an anti-war protester, and a passionate member of the women's liberation movement that really hit Australia in the mid-1960s and 70s. Biff's book, Father-Daughter Rape, published in 1984, was groundbreaking and one of the first books to publicly tackle the taboo subject of incest, rape within families, and the sexual abuse of children. Her memoir, In My Mother's Hands, was longlisted for the 2015 Stella Prize. On the 15th of March in 2021, together Biff and I took to the stage at the Canberra March for Justice rally outside Parliament House. I began our broad talk conversation by asking her what was she feeling in those moments just before she addressed that huge crowd of about 15,000 chanting people, many of whom were women who'd never attended a rally before. Biff, it's so lovely to see you and thank you so much for agreeing to talk to Broad Talk. Great delight to be talking with you, Virginia. It is lovely to be sitting in your kitchen. Here we are, I'm surrounded by all your beautiful books and it feels like a very peaceful place. So thank you for inviting me in. You're most welcome. Biff, I want to take you straight back to that march. Uh, you and I had been standing at the side of the stage throughout the rally and hanging on to each other every now and then, I've got to say. It was a, a pretty exciting day. And I, I just want to ask you to share with us what you were feeling and thinking just before we both walked up those stairs and onto that stage. How did you feel? Well, I, it was, I was feeling many specific things at that moment, in fact, but in general, I was feeling, as I had been feeling for weeks, months, this incredible excitement, this extraordinary, a kind of sense of incredulity that this revolution, this uprising, this huge wave of rage that Australian women appear to be feeling, and it feels like over 50% of, the, of women, to me, are feeling this, and it's something that I, you know, in the in the 70s when we started Women's Liberation, a huge focus for all of us, but, and I felt it particularly strongly, was sort of recruiting, the, the mm. idea that we had to grow. We were just a few hundred in the beginning and we were seeing the world anew. We suddenly saw what we would now call patriarchy. We could see it and we knew all around us other people couldn't because we never had before. It was sort of invisible. And we knew we couldn't really change the world until there were a lot of us. <laughs> and over the years, you know, we did many things and we became tens of thousands, but we didn't become what we have now, this sense of a sort of explosion in women's consciousness. And it's that. It moves me to tears a lot of the time, mm. just how 
wonderful it is, how amazing. And I, I really didn't live, think I would live to see it. I mean, through the 90s and the noughties, you know, there, there are often feminist voices of various kinds on television or in a book or something or in the paper or some event. And I'd go, oh, isn't that wonderful? She's a feminist. But it was still like identifying individuals. Mm. And now it feels, well, it is a movement of some kind. I think of it more as a consciousness, that there's a new way of thinking in the land. And it, for me, it's really centred around this shift where in situations of sexual predation or even just discrimination in the workplace, women are believed, generally are believed. And that is just extraordinary after living my whole life in a context where women weren't believed. Uh, uh, There's so many things I want to ask you about what you just said, but just going back to the idea of in the 70s you you were very conscious of the need to grow and you now think that 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 has happened – was it the size of the crowd that makes you think that's happened or is it something else or is it more than that? Well, it's certainly the size of the crowds around the country, but it is much more than that, of course. It, it, I mean, what I have observed, I think, in the last 10 years is that the advent of women's studies in university, gender studies, all the different things that's come to be called, which started around 74 or 5, and it's, you know, it's been there a long time, but that there are now sort of generations of educated women who've been studying this stuff mm. and that the discourse has developed so radically and become so much deeper and wider and the whole thing of intersectionality and how it's possible to talk about that now, which we hadn't worked out, that while people haven't necessarily been in a movement like a women's movement like we did where we worked it all out by talking about our own lives, the personal is political, people have arrived with an intellectual knowledge But because of what it's about, it is also deeply felt. It's kind of embodied for most women as well. They sense it in their own lives. In fact, that's this is jumping ahead a bit, but after the rally in the week that followed, I became quite concerned about two things. And one was from someone I'm close to who's a clinical psychologist who told me that the day after and for the rest of that week and since... Nearly all their clients who are women are talking about the effects of the rally, of that event, that Mm. day. And there's two things. One is that, of course, many of them have been triggered and... Mm. um, Triggered about their own... About their own sexual abuse. Experiences. They've all got some background of that. And feeling really triggered by that and finding that hard to handle because of what we're doing and the young women, you know, Brittany and Grace... You know, the message kind of is um, tell your story, come Mm. out, come out. Mm. And that's the second thing that a lot of women are apparently finding very hard, feeling inadequate, feeling they don't measure up, feeling they're being pressured. And so that's something I want to kind of be really mindful of. Pressured you mean to tell their stories, Mm. to speak up? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm not in this field. I've just been told this is what Mm. some psychologists are noticing since the rally. I mean, they support the rally and all of that. But So there's a question to me about how we think about each other and what's Mm. going on as a direct result of of this explosion. Mm. And the other other part of that is that, and I'm, I'm projecting here, I might be quite wrong, but my guess is that 
Whereas in the 70s, we had that first five or six years where we, nearly everything we did came out of our own experience and our, our own sort of identifying of issues. And so the talking, while a lot of people would have called it navel-gazing, and mm. a lot of it was, it profoundly changed us. Like it was mm. deeply, it changed, it bl- exploded our brains, exploded our lives, marriages broke up, all sorts of things. People changed their names, like mm. changed their very identity. And I just think the power of what's happening now may be a bit like that for some women, middle-aged women and younger women who haven't been part of a process mm. of becoming feminist and that therefore, you know, it might be quite hard. That things will, It's like a conversion experience mm. which can rock your boat, you know, really rock your boat. So you think that there might be a lot of women out there now across Australia that aren't connected to women's groups or organisations as such that are but nevertheless feeling um, compelled now to change something about their own lives? I don't mean feeling compelled. I mean that when the scales come off your eyes and you see patriarchy, you are changed. Mm. You are changed. And I fear that there might be women who you know, only have a couple of friends they can talk with about, you know, that they, they might go through quite a big personal thing um, as a lot of the rest of us are thinking about strategy and they're not quite up to that. Mm. I just, uh, is that clear enough? Yeah. yeah. You and I had a discussion um, not long after the rally and you, you told me about a, a group of your um, friends who had met and a week or so after the rally and were very excited, um, women of your generation and some of those who'd been not only big names in the 70s but very active in the women's movement. And you mentioned that they were very excited that the younger women are talking about patriarchy now. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? What, well, what do you mean? Back in the 70s, my I think this is what they meant, and this is my take on it, to talk about the patriarchy was kind of really daring. I mean, it was a word we'd never heard, we'd vaguely heard before in some anthropological context, but, you know, suddenly we saw this thing and we had posters in our homes about smash the patriarchy and so on. But to use it publicly and in our arguments, we were just ridiculed. Like it was just one of the the hardest words to use in a way that got accepted. And now it's everywhere. Yeah. Uh, Albo used it on Insiders recently yeah. and no one blinked. <laughs> and I went, wow, you know, this incredible. And which means that he and most people can see that patriarchy is a thing, that we are ruled, governed, controlled by a mm. kind of white male assumption that's been there for hundreds of years, thousands of years maybe. So are you feeling optimistic now and are, and are women again of your of your group and your um, circles and generation, particularly the women's movement, feeling optimistic as a result of the March for I Justice? I would say yes. I can't speak for everyone, but mm. yes. And I've had not a lot, but I've had some contact with women that I haven't seen since the 70s over this. But one other thing I do want to say is here at the Canberra Rally, when we met, had a meeting with some of these friends afterwards, one of the key things we noticed, which just, I can't tell you how much it lifted our spirits, was that whole hour and a half, most people in full sunshine, mm. wasn't hot, hot, but it was it full was warm, sunshine, yeah. they listened to every word. 
Yes. And that is not normal at a rally. People are chatting, they're greeting their friends, they're criticising the speaker, (laughs) whatever, but it wasn't like that. Yes. The whole crowd was listening to every word and if there was a word they didn't like, some of them booed. Yeah. As a word they like, they cheered. It was extraordinary. It was extraordinary. I must admit, mm. I noticed that too. Yeah. Uh, and the chanting that kept coming up in response to some of the things that were said. Mm. And I, I actually had a bit of chanting start during mine. I had to mm. put my hand up and enough stop people. Enough. Yes, <laughs> I had to stop them and say, oh, we'll come to that. But it, it, that was extraordinary for an hour and a half. When you were standing up on the stage, at one point you, you got particularly emotional when you said you didn't think you would ever see this day. And, in fact, that was quoted in all the major newspapers the next day. When you looked out at the crowd and from where you and I stood, we couldn't really see the end of the crowd. It turns mm. out it was almost 15,000 thick. What were you feeling? I felt like my heart might explode. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I can't remember exactly what I said, even though I watched it again yesterday, but it's something about just look at how, how wonderful you all are. Like yeah. there was this sense of truly togetherness, this uprising of people on the same page and so many and so focused and so excited. I mean, you could feel the excitement in the crowd. You could, which was extraordinary too. But as you say, they were incredibly attentive. Mm. Uh, I spoke to one young woman who told me how she came to the rally expecting to be very angry and Instead, she was overwhelmed by how calm it was and how calm she felt, which I thought was an interesting comment, that it, she felt embraced by a mm. calm. That's lovely. That's, that's a better way of saying it. <laughs> yeah, embraced certainly by calm, but safety, safety and excitement maybe. Tell me, when you were writing your speech for the march, what what were the key messages that you wanted to get across? Well, I, in fact, started writing some ideas when I first heard the march was happening. I thought, There's something, I want to say something. And I started to write. And after three days of playing around with various notes, I, had, I got in touch with you, I think, to say, do you know who's organising this thing? <laughs> yes, so I actually did. sort yeah. of asked to speak very much with a sense of speaking from that 70s group and wanting to make sure that that was linked because I think a lot of the groundwork we did is what this is all based on. The two messages I wanted to get across were that, that link to the 70s and the importance of language, the the term sexism, the term sexual harassment, all of that. You can't, none of this would have happened if we hadn't had that language. And the other was about handling rage and I was a bit concerned, but again, probably projecting, having lived with rage for so many decades. And I, ha- I have known some people get stuck in rage. Mm. You know, they're still stuck of mm. how we and use the language of the 70s. Mm. Just a couple in my life and I go, oh, no. <laughs> so I just think rage is a great motivator and it's passionately felt and it's wonderful because rage rage is different from anger. Anger is you didn't take the bins out, but rage is rage is about injustice. It's a it's a moral position that triggers rage. This is wrong, this shouldn't happen. And I think that's 
essential and very powerful, but I think to have only that or to think that's it is quite dangerous. So you wanted to get across the message that it's important not to be stuck in that rage and mm. to use the rage. There's a lot of information in rage really, isn't there? Yeah. And so to, that, that we all need to use that rage to move forward. Yeah, and, and so what I tried to say, it may not have clicked with everyone, but that part of rage, in fact, is our empathy. I mean, we wouldn't be enraged unless we were empathising with all the other women this has happened to, as well as ourselves. And also that hope is embedded in being active. I mean, just to rage around the place doesn't isn't going to get you anywhere, but having hope is, in fact, a vision. Developing a vision is part of the rage, what makes the rage work. And then I tacked on sisterhood is powerful because I really wanted to talk about <laughs> about that, the sisterhood, the closeness with other women and the sense of camaraderie that can come from your rage. Just before we stop for a break, I just want to um, ask you too, you said to me just before we went onto the stage, at the end of my speech, I want to raise my arm in the sisterhood Fist. Fist. And, and you said, will you do it too? Is that okay? And I said, of course I would, because if, absolutely, of course I would. Um, it, it's not something I would hesitate about. But why was that important to you? Well, the Women's Liberation Badge was the women's symbol with a clenched fist in the middle, and I loved that badge. For years I wore it. Many, you know, I had it on hats. I wore it whenever I possibly could get away with it. <laughs> but that symbol really matters to me. And it does have links going back into the labour movement and Marxist endeavours and so on, the clenched fist, particularly from women. Some of those pictures of real live women doing that, I just burst into tears at the sort of power mm. it suggests is possible. So I just I wanted to do it. I wanted to use this. That's all I can say. And by the time we got up near the end, I was very aware no one else had done it. Mm, I was too. And when I finished the speech, I thought, this is it, I've got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I had no idea when I did it what would happen. I thought it might be a complete flop. But to my amazement, half the crowd did roared and yeah. did it too. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> just, it was just automatic. So it was yeah. in the... In the the zeitgeist in the feel of the day, yeah. It was indeed. Biff, we're going to take a short back break and when we come back, talk a little bit more now personally about you and your life. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
Welcome back. Thank you. Biff, I want to talk now a bit more personally about your life. You've had uh, an extraordinary life as a as a feminist activist um, and author, writer, and your first book, Father Daughter Rape, came out in 1984. So the year of the Sex Discrimination Act came into being in Parliament. It was an explosive time, but boy, oh boy, it was an explosive book. Can you share a little bit about what led you to write that book? And and, and then we'll talk a little bit about how it's pertinent to right now. How I came to write the book is that from the very beginning in 1970, what I'm now calling sexual predation in all its forms, was a key focus for me. I think it was just a gut thing, not particularly what had happened to me. You know, terrible things happened to me, just the usual. But the notion of sexual violence, I was really into sex, so the notion of sexual violence, mm. unwelcome sex, just mm. appalled me. But I also I also had a deep-seated belief out of all the issues we were talking about that rape was the one thing that all women would agree on and be concerned about and would be happening in their world in all our different kinds of black and white worlds and so on. So it always seemed to me very strategic as well. So it was a huge focus for me. And um, in 78, as the first rape crisis centres opened here, 74, 5 in that period, 78 I was travelling in America and I was staying with a friend of a friend, so someone I didn't know, a single mum in Los Angeles who was a psychologist working in what she called an incest clinic. And I said, what's that? And it was the second one in California, in America, in California. And it was a place to support girls who were being sexually abused generally by their father, stepfather, whatever. And I had never heard of such a thing. So I, I was. Sorry, you'd never heard of the word, or I'd heard of incest. Mm. Yes, but this notion that for me it was just suddenly sexual predation is children too, girls in the family. Like, and I, sta- I stayed with that woman for ten days, and every night when she came home from work, I would mm. go back to this discussion. And I, I remember I said, "So what? Who are these girls? What are they like?" And she said. They're mostly 12-year-old bitches who've seduced their fathers. <gasps> oh, my goodness. And I just went, wow, this is wrong. This wow. is wrong. This is wrong. So I came back to Australia with this topic in my head, like huge explosion. And just after I got back, I started work at the women's, the new women's feminist refuge here. And within a few weeks, a family came mother and three kids, presenting this is what they were running away from, actually from a step, an old, much older stepbrother, 17-year-old, I think, who'd been raping the 11-year-old and there was stuff around the 5-year-old we never really worked out. And so our work group at that refuge just became fully alert to this thing. I ran a series of 12 workshops for us to work it out on the basis of our own experience um, and at the same time, the Sydney Rape Crisis Centre sort of got onto it, had some people come and say, this is what, this is the rape we're talking about, not adult, adult rape. So, so rape of children and in particular incest within families. Well, it was all happening in the family where mm. it still mostly is. Mm. And you're talking about the extended family as well. You're talking about uncles, grandfathers, well, that sort of yes, thing. Yes, yes. 
So I'll try and cut this story short. It was decided I would try and deal with, you know, be the caseworker for this family we had. And every week I'd come back to the staff meeting and say, whatever I was doing, it's not working. I don't know what to do. So I thought, someone must have worked this out somewhere. Mm -hmm. It'll be in a book. So I went to the library. Oh, no, first of all, I rang. The first thing I did was ring around the Canberra community of community organisations and psychologists and social workers I knew. And every one of them said, oh, yes, we had one of them once. We sent them to the hospital. Or we had one of them once. We sent them to their church. Like it became clear that this was a thing and nobody was dealing with it. Because it was children within families and it certainly wasn't considered a crime, was it? Or wasn't treated like a crime? I think it was – no, it wasn't treated because it was invisible. Mm. I mean it was a crime on the books but it it became clear it was happening very widely and – it was incredibly rare for anyone to say it was happening, so it was invisible. So when you wrote There was your no book, language around it. No, and your your book provided language around yeah. it and also provided extraordinary stories. It must have been explosive when it came out. What sort of reaction well, did you well, get? Well, in fact, back in 1984, we didn't have the sort of writing industry and festivals and things that we have now, just not at all. Um, I was sent on a book tour for two weeks and talked to a lot on radio, a couple of television and so on. But there wasn't a big reaction to it because it was too shocking, I think. Mm. It was uh, sort of too much for people. What I did become clear over the years was where it was used was in you know, tertiary education around welfare, around mm. women's studies. Um, in that, there's women, people in that field will all say, "Oh, yes, I read that," but it wasn't commonly known about. It didn't penetrate the public discourse as such. You said a moment ago, though, in referring to incest and um, uh, rape within families. Oh, it still is, as in, still is an issue. How relevant today? Well, I'm not in the field, obviously, anymore as any sort of expert, but my understanding is that sexual abuse of children by adults is still at least 75% in that context of the trusted male adult. And that's why I called it father-daughter rape, because I ended up using father with a capital F for the offending males who were grandfathers, uncles, brothers, teachers, priests, Mm. like that, that whole thing, and the daughter as you know, the niece, the whatever, the daughter. I've been quite surprised at the number of men who've spoken to me um, since the announcement of Grace Tame as our Australian of the Year about grooming and how when they heard her speech or they've heard a couple of her speeches where she's spoken about the art of grooming because she was a victim of incredible grooming by a school teacher and they've said things like, I hadn't realised, I've observed that behaviour and hadn't realised that that's what it was, that, that that's what it is and that that's what's going on. It, it just didn't occur to me. I've had a number of men say Yeah, that. well, I, when I wrote the book, I... Grooming wasn't a word. Mm. It didn't exist. I didn't think that through. I didn't know about that. But it was as at that period a book came out in America exactly the same year. And by 1986, so two years later, all the facts and docs departments in Australia were 
95% focused on child sexual abuse. Mm. It always makes me wonder what were they doing before, but I've never found <laughs> that out. Indeed. Um, and it was, you know, so it was over the next 10, 15 years as more and more people came forward and a lot of that in the first days wasn't dealt with well. It's another whole story. But it went on happening and so from the stories and the descriptions that survivors gave this notion of grooming this clear process of grooming became a thing yeah and I think it's still hard for people to believe if they hadn't sort of read about it or heard about it indeed indeed and I suspect there are as you've made reference to earlier on a number of women who've been so moved by the march for justice that are grappling with this issue themselves either in their lives or in their families Mm -hmm. and uh finally feel that perhaps they can speak up, or let's hope so. I I want to move on now to um, your other book, In My Mother's Hands, which came out in 2014. I found this a beautiful, extraordinary, moving, and at times um, gobsmacking book, a memoir of your young life. And unfortunately, we can't share that whole life here right now, but... What What is the essence of what you were sharing in my mother's hands? Well, I haven't been asked that before. I, I guess what I was sharing was an experience of being a family member, a child in this case, where severe mental illness is part of daily life. I'd been for some years before that involved in the mental health sector because my mother had schizophrenia and someone else in my family has schizophrenia, which I'm not able to talk about but I've had a lot of experience and I'd been involved in giving educational talks around it and part of what I this isn't why I wrote it I was just driven it was my story it was the story Mm. I had to tell but I, I had noticed that in all the attempts at improving the mental health sector the rights of the what's called the consumer, the person with a mental illness, was huge and primary. And there was meant to be equal rights for carers and family, but it just wasn't true, mm-hmm. which is fine. I understand that. I think the people with illness deserve all primacy they can get. But I think it's hard often for people to tell those stories. It's hard for family members to say, this is what it was like for me because it can feel like criticism of mm-hmm. the person with a mental illness. It can feel, yeah. And I think it's a really imp- important story to tell, particularly for children going through that with a parent who's very mentally ill, what that can be like. Your story's extraordinary and I should just remind our beloved listener that you come from a, a famous intellectual family of writers. In fact, I've just well, had – Well, my father. <laughs> well, I look at your bookshelf there and there's a whole shelf of, of books written by family members one way or another. But your father, of course, Russell Ward, who was a well-known academic and, and writer and, and also a, a significant community person too or who held, was held on a very high pedestal. And your mother battled enormously in the background with this, um, with her mental health. And you as a girl, as a child, as a daughter, battled to balance all of that too. Mm. Um Did writing the book and sharing the truth about her story help? Well, a lot of people have said to me, 
particularly when the book came out. Oh, that was so brave. What a brave <laughs> book. And it must have been hard. I assumed it was therapy, really. But the truth is I did 23 years of very good therapy and then I wrote the book. Mm. So for me, as I say, I was driven and anyone who's been driven to express themselves in some way, whether it's a song or whatever, will understand that. It's something you have to do. But I love writing. So for me it was sort of this wonderful experience of no question what the story was about. I didn't have to struggle with that or even do research much. I just had to craft it to tell it as best I could. And you did, and you have. It's a, it is a beautifully told story, very loving story as well. One of my sons-in-law said, when he read it, said, uh, it's a love letter to your parents. Mm. And I went, oh, wow. Mm. I have seen that. Yeah. It, well, I yeah, think it is. Yeah, yeah. I think it is. But it also made me think too so much about you as I was reading. I was reading it overseas just after it came out and uh, – we hadn't spoken for a long time, but I really wanted to reach out to you as I was turning the pages because I just thought, you know, as a, as a daughter living with a mother with such severe mental illness and, um, and to eventually lose her um, to suicide was... No, 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 she didn't. She died in her sleep. I beg your pardon. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah I yeah, beg your pardon. Yeah. Yeah. Which was a miracle. <laughs> well, well, yes, yes. Yeah. I think, I, I guess I probably was sort of haunted she, by the yeah. fact that it was going to be suicide. Yeah, but there yes, were suicide yeah. attempts yeah. earlier. But to lose her the way you did, and again, because you, you came from a family that was fairly public, it just, it sort of took your childhood away mm. in many respects. I think it did. But you've done an amazing, um, or provided, I think, an amazing gift by writing the book and sharing it. And I also think it's incredibly brave. So I I agree with that, incredibly courageous. Thank you. Coming back to your courage, though, um, let's just flip back before we end to your brazen courage. You, of course, starred in that wonderful Australian documentary, Brazen Hussies, which documents beautifully a... uh, a period of very active women's protest and, and, and women's movement rage, I suppose. Well, it was the beginning of the exploding brains period. <laughs> <laughs> the exploding brains, yes. Um, it must have been a wonderful thing to go back um, to, in the making of that documentary and see a lot of that footage in that early uh, early time. Um, do you think that that, is, uh, that story of Australia's early brazen hussies is understood? I'll just start by saying what was most wonderful was living through it. <laughs> for, all <laughs> of us, for all of us who did, it's pretty, I think, would be, almost universal that it was the most exciting period of our lives. So what was wonderful about the film being made was being recognised, was sort of having this much younger person, Catherine Dwyer, get it, like Mm. really get the liberation, the revolutionary nature of that early period and to be interviewed and questioned at such depth and such interest and such warmth. It was just an... the ones I know, as well as myself, who were interviewed, it was just a wonderful experience. But do you, do and you think that, that – oh, I'm surprised that you even think that's amazing because that would suggest that you think that younger women don't know this story or oh, well, don't get it. Don't. A couple of years ago I was asked to give a talk in a local group here of mostly young women about feminism and some – I can't remember the question. And um, I talked about the suffragettes – 
uh, the names they were called. I mean, I only had a few minutes to talk about the names they were called, and I talked about 70s and the names we were called, and she's too ugly, ugly to rape, things like that. And then I sort of asked these young women, what are you being called? And there wasn't really an answer to that, but that was the sort of tenor mm. of feminism rising up that you get attacked. And afterwards I was told there was a woman in the audience who didn't speak to me, who'd just finished a major paper in which she'd talked about feminism in Australia and left the 70s out altogether. <gasps> oh, my Lord, how so could you do that? about the suffragettes <laughs> and now. And from then on that, you know, that became a bit of a thing to me that really they need to know that, about our, that period as Indeed, well. yes. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, though, that the director of Brazen Hussies had done some work in the United States and was actually seeing the, the documentation of that period that made her look at mm. Australia and say, well, where is our, yes. where is the documentation of the women's movement or the rise of the women's movement in Australia? Was there one? And she went about then finding out herself. She, I tell you, she did such a thorough job. She said she would say to read something out and say, you wrote this in 1971, blah, blah. I said, did I? <laughs> Where was that? She just found everything. Yeah, yeah. look, it is a, it is it is such an, an exciting film and to, to see. And to answer your question, that like at the rally the other day, when the notion of brazen hussies and t-shirt on me had quite people reacted quite strongly, you know, in very positive ways. I guess I think what's happened is that knowledge that there was some weirdo bunch of women back a few decades ago who were called, you know, called man-haters and mm. so on and so on. And hairy feminists. Hairy, hairy-legged and uh, bra burners, which never happened, mm-hmm. and so on. That that's just been sitting there waiting to be sort of li- have a light shone on it and the film has really done that. And it's given us a name instead of the mm. sort of wor- wordy, boring 70s women's liberation where the brazen hussies. <laughs> Biff, how important is it now for women of Australia to link back over the decades and connect with and understand that what is happening now has a context that goes right back to the 60s and 70s? I think that's really important in a way that we often don't want to really focus on, which is that change takes a long time. Mm. (laughs) Because in 2015, I was at a seminar around ANZAC and so on, a women's thing, looking at women's peace movement in that time. And the chief, the then chief of the ACT police came and gave a talk on domestic violence. And I sat there listening. I thought, this is the playbook from 75. Mm. Like he's just, he's now in 15, so 40 years later. He's learnt what we started to say in 75. So I just went, okay, change takes 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> and we have to be patient. But uh, although I feel like I've been patient for way too long, which was why the, the March for Justice yeah, was, was so, so incredibly so powerful. Yeah, Because to have such a big, excited group feels like there's going to be a great leap forward. And I think there will be. But I actually think in terms of sexual predation, the, now that women are believed – the next thing that needs to happen, as we're all realising, is fixing up the law, the justice system, the whatever it ends up being called, but the way that these incidents can actually be handled with the woman at the centre, not the man. And that's not going to happen overnight. I'm uh, heartened by the fact that I, I've read a couple of articles suggesting within the 
legal profession, there's a whole lot of women focused on it and, uh, you know, wanting change. And I think they'll be the ones who really get something happening here. But it'll take a while. Biff, just lastly, what next? What do you think needs to happen next? There seems to be, we're just beginning to hear a bit of murmuring about let's hope this moment in time doesn't disappoint. Let's hope it doesn't all just fizzle. What do you think needs to happen next or has it already happened? Had <laughs> you said that last bit? Because I do, I think I, I've never been a sort of organisation person I'm really following policies through. I, it, it's not kind of my skill or interest. It's, my skill is the identifying issues and talking with women and writing some stuff. So I, I, mean, I think what needs to happen is, as you say, what's happened, this explosion in consciousness. The second thing is this, I've just spoke very generally about changes in the justice system, but alongside all of that is back to where I started, which is the need to look after ourselves and each other as we maintain this rage, maintain this movement and go through the changes that are necessary because a lot of women will have exploding brains and hearts. How do we look after each other? How do we do that? Oh, how, oh well, sisterhood is powerful. It's, <laughs> you know, there's a whole thing, which of course doesn't work all the time for everybody, but finding, finding your sisters where you really trust each other you share what's going on for you and out of that you identify the changes you want to see and how to bring them about. Before it has been such a beautiful pleasure to sit in your kitchen and have this conversation and thank you so, so much. I could speak to you forever, ever in a day, but thank you so much. It's been great. Thanks, Virginia. Biff Ward, an original brazen hussy still fighting the good fight to ensure women's voices continue to be heard. And that powerful wisdom she shares is clearly born from decades of working with other women to build better futures. And they have. Biff and all those other brazen hussies who ripped into government and chipped away at policy reform all those years ago, they've helped get us to this important moment in time. Clearly, there's plenty of work yet to be done on that score, but thank goodness for the work, sweat and tears of all those women who've come before us. And thank you for hanging in to the very end of this special conversation. If you want to share your thoughts, pop into the Broad Talk Facebook page or onto the Broad Talk Roundtable group and chat away. I really do love hearing from you. So until next we meet, happy chatting. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 